As I walk through the grocery store, (laughs) searching for Stewie, because I lost him again in here. I ask myself, what the deuce? Is there any hope for finding the funny baby? And each time I lose my freaking kid, there's just one thing I want to know. What's so funny about losing the funny talking baby? Oh, what's so funny about losing the funny talking baby? I, uh... So, I'm, <laughs> yeah, so you've been posting that song on just your personal Instagram, just like by sharing your story yeah. recently. And I'm happy uh, that you found a way to incorporate it into our canon of Family Guy parody. Well, this one, this one, to be honest with you, Mason, I wanted to do an entire song like you would normally do, but... With okay. the fact that our guest is coming in all the way from the East Coast tonight, I didn't want to fuck around. I just wanted to get straight to it. So, you guys are you're good. Uh-oh. Guest is already <laughs> jumping ship already. Doesn't even want to be here. Uh, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want to delay anything because I know our guest is coming in late. But it is what it is. I'm going to get you with a full-ass parody song next week. I'm going to do a full version of it. Awesome. But I wanted to get this one here, and I almost did a full version of it tonight. No, yeah, I, uh, well, I am certainly thankful that our guest is who he is today for a number of reasons, mostly because he's returning to the show, our second ever guest coming back to the show, and he's also co-host of podcast, oh! the Barn of Podcast about The Shield, and on top of that, he's also a writer, oh! a critic, a poet, oh! uh, an all-around cool, handsome guy, and of course you know him, so I don't think I need to say it. But just if you, in case you don't know now, you know Connor Crockford oh, is yeah. back on the show with us, and he is calling in from the east. Hi, everybody! <laughs> Happy to have you back, Connor. Um, Same. But yeah, you are on the east coast. You're in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and how are mm-hmm. things going? It's been uh, it's been, it's yeah, been over a year They're since we talked good. to you last on the show. I know, very different set of circumstances. Um, very, very, very different. But you were still beamed in uh, via technology mm-hmm, right. last time. So the more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. That's right. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah. No, 100%. Um, yeah, things are going good. Can't complain. Been writing a lot. Uh, you know, going as far as they can go with the pandemic. Sure. So, um, <laughs> in terms of how I'm doing. But, you know, doing. I'm surviving. Hell yeah. yeah. You still manage to... If you didn't hear it before, folks, we managed to put out the show, The Barn, a podcast about The Shield every week. And unfortunately, we are coming to – maybe fortunately, maybe uh, – fortunately for the listeners because <laughs> it's the best stretch of the show. <laughs> I don't mean fortunately because the show is ending, but we're coming to the end of The Shield. And I just thought that it would be fun uh, to have Connor back on because he was our inaugural Zoom guest almost. Yeah. Anyway. And also just to kind of, uh, you know – Plug my other show. <laughs> For strictly show. advertising Good purposes, <laughs> we're having Connor back. Exactly. <laughs> so, so because we're so close to the end, folks, um, and if you weren't with us from the beginning, uh, Connor, why don't you give the pitch on The Shield and why people should check it out and then why they should check out our show? So this is basically the greatest possible cop show about a cop who shoots um, a, the system in the face and tries to get away with it for the next seven seasons. 
And okay. the frill of the show is that this is the worst guy possible. Uh, basically, you're following him as he is convinced that he's not an evil man and just pulls himself deeper and deeper into the consequences of his actions. Uh, there's a lot of crime, mayhem, violence, sex, uh, crazy pulp stuff, severed arms, serial killers, uh, really good drama. It's a fantastic series. Mason, that sounds just like this show that we're doing right now. <laughs> it's all, all, yeah, <laughs> all exactly. the pulp and all exactly. the crime <laughs> that we commit. Maybe crimes against right. humanity. Severed arms. Any, yeah, no. This show is fucking <laughs> noted for its use of severed arms in a podcast medium. <laughs> Um, I don't mean to detract real quick before from the uh, from the pitch of the barn, but I have to point this out. Mason, you and I are both wearing red sweaters today, and we, we didn't are. plan that, Mason. Oh, I'm so upset. I'm, I'm the guest. I'm that. It's that. I know. I'm we out. didn't. We do have the. No, but it's cool that like on Zoom, at least how I look, it's like kind of a little triangle of like I don't know the Red Cross or the Swedish flag or like a peppermint stick or something. I think it looks pretty cool. Connor, unfortunately, I guess the memo didn't get all the way to Philly in time for you to hit that red Braid sweater trend. But you know yeah. what? I, I'm living with it. It's okay. All right, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're going to be able to put that behind you because. We actually have two guest choices today. Of course, when the guest comes on the show, we give them an opportunity to pick both things. Sometimes they pick both things. Sometimes they just pick one or the other. In the instance of Sonny Dion Jr. coming on the show, the first time he picked zero of the things that we talked about. <laughs> but I think that's the only time in show history. I think that's the only time in show history that that's happened. I can't think of another time where the guests didn't pick the, anything the reversa hacker episode was coming oh on the, on the that's end. true that's true but i we brought her on so that we could talk about uh the judy sill album but nonetheless connor before we get into your first pick today mason we have an email yes also if since you since no one interrupted <laughs> that's before true. You i'm sorry bond, i'm fucking sorry connor please pitch the show it's, pitch or the to someone pitch yeah, the show yeah, itself connor before i read this email <laughs> Oh, Connor yes. and I do an episode by episode breakdown of the show, uh, and we have a lot of fun doing it. And you can hear my podcast beginnings because that was the very first podcast I ever recorded. Uh, Connor had the great idea to get this the ball rolling on this, and it's been a blast for the last two years. So you can start the show and our podcast at the same time, and probably by the time we finish seasons covering season seven, you will have hopefully caught up. But That's right. uh, we have a fun show. We have some good guests. We have a good discussion. And you should listen to it. Uh, and uh, but yeah, but so as Noah was saying, uh, we have an email. And as a reminder, you can send an email to everybody wants to the number two get on the list at gmail.com. And we will read it on the air. Uh, and if you're done, <laughs> we sitcom, will maybe read it on the air. I don't want people sending in <laughs> fucking anything, basically saying, fuck you, Mason. Fuck you, Noah. We're not going to read that on the air. But if your email rocks, we'll read it on the air. How about that? So here's what. Um, <laughs> so Dustin had some feedback after our best of 2020 okay. episode or our, our, our 2020 wrap ups. <clears throat> Dear Mason, this email <laughs> is intended for you and not Mr. Marger. Happy Great. New Year. Hopefully by the time you read this message, America has not erupted in an all out civil war. So far, we just missed so it, far. So we're far, okay. So far on as Thursday, January 21st. No yeah, civil war. Very cool. Now. Uh, nevertheless, Yet. I am formally declaring, <laughs> I am formally declaring war on you, <laughs> me, Mason, due to various public opinions you have expressed. So, oh. so Dustin is trying to censor, censor us. This is a note. This for Canada, Canada is trying to censor This is exactly me. <laughs> what Joe Biden's socialist government wants to do is censor this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. 
<laughs> Last week, so this he sent this on January 13th, so this would have been New Year's week. Last week, he shared an Instagram story that voiced support for anti-tame and poly wow. feelings. This is the straw that broke this Canadian camel's back. You have also made it clear you are incapable of par- pronouncing a peach upon name. Okay. I confess up to that, too. Uh, and for this, you must pay. Your decision to include Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Philip Kaufman as your number one first watch of 2020, is clinically insane. Wow. <laughs> I'd also like to point out Mr. Marger is crazy for his thoughts on that one, but I will be warring with him for the, I will not be warring with him for the time being. It's the a five-star film. What's he else... talking about? Thank you. Thank you. He's Thank a f- you. Dustin is um, actually on the wrong side of history on that one, to be honest with you. Really, Dustin though? Is actually a, <laughs> Dustin, Dustin, in the next sentence, he says, um, I am, uh, he said, the two of you and everyone else are pod people. I am the last real human being alive, and I will not go to sleep. That sounds like something a pod person I know, say. Dustin. <laughs> get your head out of your fucking pod ass, dude. Come on. But we, Mason, you and I quite literally, actually, all three of us are quite literally pod people. We all have podcasts, so. That's I know. True. Look at that. <laughs> oh my god! Maybe Dustin's onto something here. That's my mind exploded. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I am as, uh, I am awake as ever, and you will not beat me. Also, Led Zeppelin is not corporate rock. They literally turned down a billion dollars from Rich and Branson to go on world tour. I think that's just kind of picking nits, but whatever. Don't ask me what episode you episode you said they were corporate rock on. You said it. It's on the internet, and everything I hear on the internet is true. Lots of love, Dustin. And I just responded, hey, uh, Dustin, thanks for your email, best. <laughs> so, <laughs> fucking got him, dude. So uh, this has been a, a public declaration of war by Dustin Kitcom on to anyone with good taste. Uh, and we will be invading Canada. Yeah, Connor's got his Yeah, gun. he's fucking loading his musket up as we speak. It's when I reach for my revolver. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dustin, well, we do. I just want to very clearly state on this. Uh, it seems like all three of us are of the opinion that the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is quite a good movie, and Dustin is the one who is absolutely out of his fucking mind for thinking that it's not Uh, good. I've got to say, actually, that was my first, one of my first watches of 2020. Probably one of the best ones. I'm a Mason. Yeah, that was easily way up there. I mean, immediate, like, this is a classic. Like, fucking, fucking hell, man. I know. Come on. It's 100%. I, uh... Dustin is, is from what I can gleam on Letterbox, and he doesn't up, he doesn't log stuff on Letterbox very fa- frequently. But mm. he does not appear to like seventies American seventies American paranoid movies very much. Like oh, see. that really seem to be his his bread that's, and butter. That's an now. interesting that's an interesting observation because he and I are doing like a little movie club thing where once a week, like one of us will mm-hmm. pick the movie and we'll talk about it or whatever. I picked. The 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And the other movie that I think you're referring to, Mason, is 74's Parallax View. Am I right on that? Yes. So both very paranoid movies, both movies that I'm picking. Don't know what that's saying about me right now. Maybe that's more of a comment on me than anything. But I don't know. He doesn't fucking jive with it, I guess. And it's like, dude, come on. What are you fucking doing? I will say Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake I think is much better than Parallax View. To be honest with you, I think it's like a full step Mm -hmm. up as far as my enjoyment, at least, but that's really neither here nor there. I enjoyed both the movies, uh, as it were. But Dustin's literally giving them star and a halfs or just one stars. And to me, that's like, you must hate that movie because that's like a really low score, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't. Here's how I will say this: I wouldn't even give Click a star and a half. Thank you, thank you, man, man. <laughs> thank you for sticking up for Click in the only way that you know how. Thank you. 
<laughs> yes, I, I'm trying to. I know this movie means a lot to you. I'm trying to be nice. It doesn't even uh, and doesn't your mean for that it. much to me. That's the crazy thing. I just like think it's. Oh, I just think it's underrated. That's quite literally it. But enough about that shit, Connor. You brought us two things. You brought us an album, yes. and you brought us a movie. We like to start with the album most of the time on this show, and this show, this episode mm-hmm. will be no different. Can you give us a quick preview? Just a quick preview of what the album is that we're talking about today. Yeah, today we're talking about the uh, album Hats by the Blue Nile. Came out, I want to say, 1989. Um, this is kind of one of the last 80s albums, and it's almost pure in what... It is kind of... It's kind of the platonic ideal of 80s pop music, except um, taken to a greater level of of depths of sadness and loneliness and poignance and this urban emptiness it's like if edward hopper did a wow. synth pop album okay and it, it is wonderful damn that's a great that's a, this is a great that's album. a great little like snapshot of what we're talking about today thank you that was really well put obviously clearly the man is a writer he just i don't know if you are reading off a cue card yeah. over there or what but that was a really nice little distillation i think of what we're gonna I, i've about written today. about this album so i can't say i'm uh, unfamiliar <laughs> what but, what is, uh, yeah what is your like well i guess I'm at, i'll ask you this first you could have picked sure. any album to bring on this show in theory mm-hmm. any album that you deem to be underrated or don't people don't know enough about mm-hmm. Why did you pick this album specifically? Why was this the one that you decided to bring on the show? Uh, you know, when I looked at, I picked Society and then I decided to do something else that was also very, that also technically came in 89. Right. Uh, I think Society was filmed a little earlier than that, but it didn't come out until then. And they both feel like last 80s movies, like they're very definitive. Sure. Um, but they're mm-hmm. also very subversive of their time. This is the half-assed, pretentious version of the answer I'm giving <laughs> okay, you, Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, the other answer is both of these things are fucking great. I love talking about them. Sure. Uh, and I do think they both are really unique pieces, um, especially Society, as we will discuss. Very unique. Film, sure, truly. for yeah. sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, what is your for lack of a better term, your relationship with mm. this album. When did it come into your life? How has it changed yeah. over time? Just give us a quick little idea of what your relationship is with this from the first time you heard it till now, if you can. Sure. Um, you know, I first heard these the first two Blue Nile albums uh, back in, like, 2018 and got really obsessed with them, especially over the winter. Okay. Um, and just would like go into a walk on across the rooftops over and over, just walking around uh, when I was living in downtown Philly. Um, you know, this kind of, it was so perfect for the landscape I was in, you know, really cold and desolate uh, and, and yet so beautiful, sure. you know, and, and lovelorn and emotional. So um, I just naturally got obsessed with both those albums and ended up writing about them for uh, my old stomping grounds, uh, no recess magazine. Um, where I loved writing for them. But yeah, I wrote a whole piece about the Blue Nile. Um, I still haven't gotten to their uh, third album. I think it's called Peace. Um, but I really should at some point. Yeah. Yeah, they're not a terribly prolific band. They've no. released, I think they've released like four or five albums over a 30-year period. They're, they're quite literally the opposite of a yeah. prolific ba- group. They're like, the op- they're like, whatever the opposite of prolific is, is what these guys are. They have four real albums 
since, mm-hmm. and again, we'll get into it when I get into the fast facts, but since their breakup, yeah. quote unquote, you know, it's never been official or whatever, but the last time they released an album was, I believe, in 2004, and that was called High, and that was recorded over the course of seven years. Uh, so, Hell yeah. you know, <laughs> sounds about really right. just really just <laughs> taking their sweet fucking time with this stuff. But I think you can tell. And before we actually dive in and talk mm-hmm. about the albums themselves, Mason, do you have any history with this band, this album, these guys? Yeah. Yeah. So the same way that so this is another Discover Weekly band. Oh, okay. One. Classic, <laughs> classic, to, classic yeah. bit on this show. Mason learning about every yeah. single song he's ever heard from <laughs> Discover Weekly on Spotify. Yeah, I was like, you know how Paul Schrader never saw a movie until he went to college? I never heard a single song <laughs> until I got his Spotify account yeah. and got his Discover <laughs> Weekly playlist. Uh, but no, but the song Stay off of A Walk Among Atop Rooftops, their mm. first album was recommended to me in, I think, May of 2017. So I do have a little bit of squatters rights on this band. Yeah, let's fucking go, dude. <laughs> there go. Here we go. <laughs> uh, but no, but I listened to... I loved that song. I loved that album. And then I just, like, in listening to it, because their song just... Their sound just vibed with me so much. This kind of, like, very sad 80s synth pop, which I'm just, like... It's still, like, kind of, like... Um, the only thing I think I'm really ever interested in listening to is, is sad 80s synth pop, but that's a conversation for another <laughs> show. Uh, but mm-hmm. I listen to this a lot. And actually, this is uh, pre The Barn, I believe, but Connor and I were just like friends and messaging each other on like uh, Facebook if like we find a song or something that the other yeah. would be interested in. He actually meant, asked if I had heard of um, The Blue Nile, and I think that the song you asked about was. I want to say it was Saturday night um, in the particular vocal performance yeah, of that song. Yeah, think that. Um, and then he wrote that great article, which I will try to dig up and put in the notes. Um, but yeah, but I had, and it's so funny, actually, before Connor even thought, uh, we confirmed the show with Connor and his topics, I was thinking, uh, we had confirmed, had him confirmed as a guest, just not the topics. And I was just kind of thinking to myself, man, I kind of want Connor to come <laughs> on and talk about the blue. No Nile. shit. And now dude, I feel wow. like I manifested. Wow. This. Okay. That's a little, that's a little, that's a little new age, little mysticism that you're practicing there, Mason. That's crazy. Um, yeah, bro. I will just, I guess then I, I, we have, you know, you and Connor who really dig this, dig, dig these guys and have dug these guys for so long. This is brand new to me. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of the Blue Nile. I had never heard of this album. This is a complete new experience for me listening to this. Not as much as far as like this sound because I think mm. that this sound is, mm-hmm. you know, you hear it, you know, in 80s music. To me this sort of feels like if you just had to imagine what 80s music sounds like, I would probably play – this is one of the <laughs> bands or this is one of the albums that I would play for someone if they're like, what did 80s music sound like? Or, like, what do you think of when you think of the perfect – Plato's perfect 80s song? You know, I might play something off this album. But this was a brand-new album to me. I had never heard of them until we recorded for this episode. Mm. So, yeah, nice. a little bit of a little bit of a spectrum here as far as, you know, people, you know, digging into them at different times. But let's go ahead and dig in to this bad boy, and let's talk about this album a little yeah. bit specifically. Yeah. Uh, Connor, what do you think stands out first when you first put on this album? Uh, I think the the starkness of the the sound. Uh, it, you know, we talked about sort of how 
this is the platonic ideal of 80s pop um i think a key element here is that it feels like all of the elements of that sound um stripped down but also taken to the jazziest most probably the most like long form experimental place you could probably take a lot of this stuff like a lot of the songs were longer than like five minutes they tend to go on a little longer um and i think what's really striking is how paul Ro- paul rogers is that the name of the the singer i believe so. i believe yeah, it's paul buchanan yeah, rogers paul is rogers is, is the guy from bad company paul actually, buchanan, i'm I sorry no yeah you're good you're good uh, you're good <laughs> wow i'm sorry paul buchanan <laughs> You're good. Forgive me. Forgive yeah, me. Yeah, no, we're he's he's for well, no, the but, whole uh, thing's forgiven. He 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 doesn't listen to this yeah. fucking show anyway. He'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking no, about? He did the theme. Damn, that's true. He did write the theme. Actually. But what were you saying, Connor? Oh shit. No, but uh, Paul Buchanan's um, lyrics and vocals are really weird, in particular because they're so stripped down. the The writing is so poetic, but it's very sparse. Um, it's based in phrasing and not in long writing, long-term lyrics. It's it, it's very poetic. It's really strange, too. Um, yeah. Like, a lot of the lyrics like, are more abstracted. It's odd. It is. It kind of reminds me, Noah, of, uh, Connor, on last week's episode, we were talking about the Ott album, Room Inside the World. And the kind of, the lyrics of, uh, Tim mm-hmm. Darcy's lyrics kind of remind me of um, uh, Paul Buchanan's writing sometimes, because... You're right. It's they're they're all very stripped mm. down, but they're stripped down to find like just the most uh, sort of emotional, sort of passionate center of this thing mm. of these albums. Like I, I wrote down some of my favorite lights lines. Um, so from a late night train, this line just gutted me when I was listening to it most recently. Uh, it's over, but I can't let go. And the way that he just keeps saying it's over, it's over, it's over. Um, man, yeah. that's really what this album is about for me. The 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 thing I think I that I feel the most, if we want to sort of talk about that aspect uh, of Blue Nile, which I completely agree, it's not he's not really saying a lot of words, but the words that he does decide to say, you know, say more because you feel as though it's very deliberate, which is like everything about this album and everything about this band. I feel like everything is very deliberate. Everything is very methodical. Everything is very planned i mean they take so long you know they did take so long to uh to release projects and just the opening of the downtown lights sometimes i walk away when all i really want to do is love and hold you right there is just one thing i can say nobody loves you this way it's all right that's not very like Mm -hmm. you know we're not, you know, we're not, you know, reaching into the ethereal with that, really. We're not reaching into, like, you know, some crazy, like, other realm. Those are very, like, no. s- like grounded words, you know, that he's using, words that you hear often just said in an order and in a way that really resonate, you know? And I think that is, like, yeah. part of the magic uh, of that. And that really stuck out to me in the downtown lights. And one thing I want to want to point out here real quick is that, and I feel like this is very hard to do in any art medium but i think especially in things that aren't visual this is very hard to do this album gives me on most of the tracks the majority of the overwhelming majority of the tracks it gives me a great sense of place i think there's great like you think of there's just such rich imagery and such rich feeling that goes along with what is being talked about here 
that I really felt I could envision where I would like to be listening to these songs the most. And I actually have those yeah. to share with you guys here real quick. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, um, on four of the tracks, <laughs> the ones that really stood out to me the most. There's only seven tracks on this on this project, uh, all told. But these are the four that really, really stuck out to me the most. On the first track, Over the Hillside, there is this... I'm originally from uh, the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. I'm actually in the suburbs of Port- Portland, Oregon, and have been pretty much for almost a year at this point due to COVID-19. Uh, but there is this, there's this cemetery that was really close to my grandparents' house. And there was, like, the main part of the cemetery that, like, most people could just see from the road. But if you turned left instead of going right at this really weird little intersection, there was, like, these smaller, maybe even private areas of the cemetery. There was, like, a really big, like... To, like almost a tomb that was erected for like this guy. I think it literally just said Humbertson on it from what I remember. It was just like some mm-hmm. guy's private. That was like his version of the headstone. It was just huge and ornate. But it was this spot a little bit off from the cemetery. And if you drove there on a clear day, you could see an amazing part of Portland proper and an amazing <laughs> view of the mountain, of Mount Hood specifically. And I think maybe even if it was really clear, you could see Mount St. Helens all the way up in Washington off in the distance. But I'm not 100% sure on that. But that just made me think of that so clearly and just took me back to like when I was in high school and I would like drive over to that spot and just – you know, mm. be angsty and just be like, God damn, like the world <laughs> is so insane <laughs> and I'm 17 years old and I don't know how to feel about it. Mm-hmm. But do you guys have mm-hmm. any thoughts specifically about that first track over the hillside? I'm 17 years old in 2013 and this is the worst it's going to be for me. <laughs> Dude, I'm, you know, you think it, you really think it. And then, and <laughs> you do, you do. It's sweet. It's sweet. It's so and then you sweet. get to 2020 uh, and you're like, well, <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. Oh man. Over the hillside. I think my one note in that was just how, um, it's, I think that Paul Buchanan's also a terrific vocal performer. Oh yeah. And, uh, just in the character that he gives his voice when he's singing and the character that he you know, inhabits as the lead singer of this band. And I noticed, I think it was my third time listening to it for the show, um, that he's, like, as the song goes on, he is getting, sounding more and more, like, kind of weary and defeated. Yeah. Um, that's kind of my big thought about that song. Uh, Connor, what are your thoughts about Over the Hillside? Yeah, uh, this is such a great introduction to the album, uh, especially how the vocals and music kind of interact with each other, uh, the starkness of it too. I, I think one of the things that the Blue Nile does with this album so beautifully is use silence really well, uh, and the mm. tension of... It's kind of the presence of silence, I guess you could say, is in this album. Like, There's certain tracks where the songs are pretty stark, um, especially this one in Downtown Lights. Downtown Lights is very weird. Yeah. It is like four tracks on a song. Like, like yeah. because the synth and the piano and the vocals and that's in the drums and that's it. It's very strange. I I, I love that song. If we could yeah, just please. No, yeah, and yeah. Speak, yeah, and, and to your point, Connor, about this, the way that this album uses the tension in between notes or silence, mm. basically. One of my favorite things about the Downtown Lights is those really just, like, sharp staccato, I guess they're, like, yeah. some violins. They're just, like, the doop, doop, doop. Going with a beat. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. Uh, Frumming um, beat. 
Exactly, exactly. And it's just, um, I put that song in my playlist, like my kind of running sort of like scene, like, I don't want to say aesthetic, but like the sort of scene playlist. You're, t- you're, you're, you're a living called- Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this playlist is called Crane Up to the Skyline. And what that, so- that, that playlist is meant to uh, evoke is like, a like a dolly crane at the end of a movie sure. up to the skyline and there's like you know the sun like rising or setting or there's just like lights in the distance or something and you just feel like you're on the precipice of some sort of like new adventure new scary adventure or something yeah um and that's what i that's the character that i get from the downtown lights for for least. me this for me this one is almost more dreamlike in how i feel about it like i feel like it's like i'm wandering throughout a metropolis of some kind at night yeah whether i'm new to the area yeah. or whether i've you know lived there oh you know a long time it feels new and i'm looking up at all these buildings that you know feel new for the you know f- i'm looking at them for the first time in this different way uh and it really just has that like sense of like newness and that sense of like excitement to it then i think that's a lot of what you're talking about mason that you know crane up move mm-hmm. you know to the sky this very triumphant feeling uh in this song specifically uh can we talk quickly about from a late night train as well okay Mm -hmm. so this one i don't i wonder how you guys are going to feel about what i'm about to describe here there's a very specific feeling that i haven't felt in a while because of covid19 that this song instilled in me when i listened to it and that is the going to the airport really early in the morning and coming back from a flight really late at night and landing in the air, like in the fucking airport, you either are about to embark on a journey or you're, you know, coming back from a journey. And that's really what I got from this. And that's just a feeling that I haven't felt that, that idea of about to travel or coming back home, you know, that I haven't felt in so long because, you know, we're all stuck inside more or less. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. There's so much exhaustion all over this record, actually. I was going to say, like, Paul Buchanan sounds so fragile all over, like, the songs. Yeah. Like, he just sounds like a wounded bird, you know? He's so, <laughs> yeah, like, totally. please just love me. Like, I, and I get it. I get it, man. I've been, I've been in his shoes, you know? You just, like, that weird need for comfort is all over his voice. Um, Yeah, I think that's definitely present on this song, too. Um. It's such a we- these songs are so weird. They don't. It's like they they just like are so down tempo, and like not what yeah. you would expect for them at all. It's great, especially compared to the first album, which is a lot more upbeat. Actually, oh really? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the yeah. their earlier album is a much more I think traditional synth pop where mm-hmm. you can at least like like yeah, there's songs and you're kind of uh you know you. As a lot of British music was in this period, you can dance to it even if the lyrics are very, very, very sad. <laughs> right? Like Tinseltown in the Rain is super dancey. Like you can Oh, definitely, definitely. But yeah. it's like unless you wanna like set aside half an hour for just like straight slow dancing with your sweetie, which you should. <laughs> you should slow dance with your sweeties. Folks. Listen, you're here to hear this is uh, this is the official endorsement of this podcast is slow dance with your <laughs> sweetie, baby. Let's do it. But this is a good like kind of slow dance album. Totally. Yeah. Like this you know, there, it's it's a very – I like that you use the word fragile, and it's also very romantic. Like, I do kind of feel like I have to 
you know, to Noah's point about it being so evocative and, and bringing up these, these very specific, like, kind of feelings that are t- associated with place. Like, you know, when I was hearing this album for the first time, I was feeling so homesick in L.A. And all I wanted was, like, a rainy day to walk sure. around yeah. Chicago or something, you know, which is, like, and, like, to, or to sit on the train or the bus at, like, in, like, the back corner of the bus and just, like, look out the window and listen to music. Well, it's, inter- yeah. it's interesting, uh, Mason, that you actually brought up slow dancing because the last track saturday night point. to me oh, that true. is just oh, yeah that is like the ultimate like end of winter formal end of prom end of oh, dance yeah. everyone's sort of filing out in the literal space the literal location is empty and you are you know seeing everything deflate and the energy leave the room and i think that's such a beautiful image uh, i'm and in awe of that my... song oh my god it, it's it is awesome. It's uh, your your Alma, it's your Alma and Reynolds at the end of Phantom Thread just hugging <laughs> each other. Oh man. yes! Oh my God, good call. Yeah, yep, exactly. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Uh, some I remember reading this essay that compared that song to Joyce, just particularly that line. You know, Saturday. Uh, oh, an ordinary James girl Joyce? can make the world all right. Um, James Joyce, yeah, yeah, James Joyce, and like. It's, it's it's crazy that this album can evoke those comparisons to like hopper and joyce but like i i think that romantic frustrated like urban sensibility is all over those writers and artists and all over this album too um and saturday night really is indicative of that i love those gleaming synth sounds especially over the chorus it's just beautiful like Mm -hmm. goddamn if I, I can't even be. That's all I got. It's beautiful. If 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 you're not familiar with the Blue Nile or this album specifically, mm-hmm. two people that I think are interesting touch points. One I think is a little obvious as far as a touch point is concerned, and that's Peter Gabriel. I think that there's yeah. if you like Peter yeah. Gabriel, like you, solo stuff, not as much when he was like early days with Genesis or whatever. But if you like sure. Peter Gabriel solo stuff. I think you're going to have a lot to enjoy in this album. Uh, I actually literally, the day that I listened to this album for the show for the first time, I just happened to wake up that morning and watch the Sledgehammer music video, like, in the morning. Mm. And I was like, damn, not only is this one of the best, like, pieces of art ever made, this Sledgehammer music video, like, it's just so creative and, like, freewheeling and fun and, like, you know, such, like, has an amazing energy and spirit to it. But it also, like, just Peter Gabriel just, like, as a whole, I feel like is such a good analog to a lot of what is happening on this album specifically. And I don't know if, Connor, you're familiar with this other person, Mm. but we talked about him on the show previously. He was a my pick. I got some Alex Cameron vibes from this as well, Mason. Uh, I like Alex Cameron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Mason got me into Alex Cameron, actually. Um, (laughs) And I could definitely see that. It's... You know, it's no nowhere near as like jaded or satirical. Sure, absolutely. Like, like I feel like Cameron has a specific persona where he's like this like violent fuckboy kind of. Yeah, for sure. Like a violent yeah. asshole fuckboy basically. <laughs> and like, whereas like, uh, yeah, Buchanan is like this like lovelorn guy. Like he just wants a yeah. sweetie to be with him all the time. He's kind of clingy. Um, well, I but <laughs> I know what you mean about that. Like the the synthy romanticism is definitely there for sure i love that that's a good comparison yeah well we i mentioned him on my 2020 wrap-up but this is another guy that i knew because connor introduced him to me but westerman Mm. who's from who uh put out a really good uh ep in 2018 and then an album last year called um your hero is not dead that's the name of the album yeah um but he has a very sort of similar like kind of um uh, uses silence and sort of atmosphere really well. 
uh, also kind of like um, a loneliness and the fragility to the to his music. Uh, not quite as I don't think lovelorn, just more of a general, just kind of like, oh man, it's, ain't it ain't it tough to be alive? Sort of situation with um, with Westerman. <laughs> But uh, but I think those are two very good <laughs> comparison points. Uh, is there anything else worth noting yeah. about either the Blue Nile or this album before I dive into the Fast Facts? Because I am going to dive in a little bit into the band's overall history, so I do have a little bit more Fast Facts to go through than normal. Mm-hmm. But is there anything else, Connor or Mason, that you feel you need to say about the band or the album? Oh, I just wanted to oh, – Connor, do you have anything first? Oh, just uh, one touch point I named too is um, Scott Walker. I feel like he's a big influence yes. here. Um, just the the feeling all over this album is all over those Scott albums too. Uh, so if you like if you like Scott Walker, I would definitely recommend the Blue Nile. Yeah, and if you like if you like the Blue Nile and you haven't heard Scott Walker, you should listen to Scott Walker. Exactly. Uh, that will that yes, will be me point. because I have not heard of Scott Walker. So that's that's going to be me immediately following oh. this record. I'm excited. Oh, Noah. Oh, you're in for a treat. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You are in for a treat. Hell yeah. Oh my God. Mason, anything right. else? You know what? I'm going to hold off on my other thing until we get into the MVP. Sure. So, Noah, hit us with some Okay, I'm going to try and go through these as quickly. That's why they're fast, because I'm going to go through them as quickly as I can, because there's a little bit here. But the Blue Nile, our musical group from Glasgow, Scotland. Following early, sure. yeah, following early championing by established artists such as Ricky Lee Jones and Peter Gabriel, the Blue Nile gained acclaim, particularly for their first two albums, Hats mm-hmm. and A Walk Across Rooftops. The band members have also gained a reputation for their avoidance of publicity, their idiosyncratic dealings and the recording industry, and their perfectionism slash slow work rate, mm-hmm. which has resulted in the release of just four albums since they formed in 1981. The, group's, the group appears to have disbanded since their fourth album, High, in 2004, although they have never officially confirmed a breakup. We just think that that's where they're at. Uh, during the recording of Hats, the band consisted of singer-songwriter Paul Buchanan, bassist Robert Bell, and keyboardist Paul Joseph Moore. Buchanan and Bell grew up together in Glasgow and attended University of Glasgow in the late 70s, Buchanan gaining his degree in literature and medieval history so shout out to us a studious king there uh and then bell and mathematics another studious king uh buchanan's civil servant father had been a semi-professional musician Mm -hmm. and had um instruments in the house but it was only after he and bell graduated that buchanan began to think about seriously pursuing a career in music Although Buchanan had grown up in the same neighborhood as Paul Joseph Moore, who would later join the band, it was only at university where Moore was studying electronics that they became well acquainted, and the three actually formed the band, first known as McIntyre, named after the John McIntyre Building, which is the admin office at the college that they attended. So that's a college band if I've ever heard one naming something after Mm -hmm. the college that you go to. That would be like... That would fucking be like if I formed a band at Chapman and we called ourselves Arduous Forum. Like, that's what that would be. Like, that's some <laughs> bullshit right there. Uh, so that's that on them. Here's a couple other little fast facts. Uh, where was I? So then they so they went by McIntyre. Then they went by Night by Night, although Buchanan later commented that Night by Night, quote, only played twice, maybe three times. The band struggled to retain a settled lineup, and by 1981, Buchanan, Bell, and Moore were the only remaining members. The trio decided not to recruit anyone else, trading in the guitar for an effect pedal and borrowing an old drum machine uh, that only played Hispanic-American music rhythms, according to the band themselves. 
Uh, Having no drummer with limited musical ability, particularly Buchanan's guitar playing, uh, the newly formed Blue Nile adopted an atmospheric electronic approach, blah, 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 primarily out of pragmatism. And then they did really well with their first album, keen to capitalize on the positive critical reception. Lynn, who was working with the band at the time, this guy named Lynn, sent the band back to Castle Sound Studio in early 1985 to produce a quick follow-up record. However, as the band later admitted, they had no new material ready to record and were not happy with the songs they were producing under the studio pressure. That led to arguing from the band members and uh, Virgin Records not helping with any of that. So they basically had a long writer's block period, and then in 1988, they eventually escaped uh, Castle Sound, and they were able to complete the album, basically getting away from the studio. Uh, as a promotional tool, a Records had distributed hats in North America. They took out a full-page advertisement in Billboard magazine offering a free copy of the CD to anyone who called a toll-free number, which was provided on the ad. I would fucking love to get free music just by calling up a number. That sounds like <laughs> fucking dream come true. Uh, <laughs> Q Magazine... You can basically do that now. You have music on your phone. I'm I want, sure. but I want to call A and M Records and be like, "Give me hats by the Blue Nile," just for fucking calling the re- just for fucking That's calling the thing. the thing. That's exactly right. I can fucking dial up, you know, you know, Jenny from the Block by J Lo if I want to on my phone. But it's one thing if I have to call Atlantic Records and be like, hey, "Give me Jenny from the Block" by Jennifer. Lopez. Okay, okay, okay. Couple more here, just a real quick. Uh, this band, this band, excuse me, this album was voted number 345 in the third edition of Colin Larkin's all-time top 1,000 albums, which was a publication released in the year 2000. Q Magazine placed it at number 92 in its list of 100 greatest British albums ever in the year 2000, and number 38 in its list of 40 best albums of the 80s in 2006. They, like I said before, they broke up, quote unquote, after releasing the album High in 2004. When asked about the, you know, that thing, uh, Buchanan said, when we eventually finished High, I don't think it was bristling with the same joy and naivety that we'd felt when we started. We'd gathered ourselves long enough to make it. Uh, When it seemed to me a stoic record to some extent and a record about ourselves, though I didn't realize that till later. It was collected in fairly stoic record, or excuse me. I was proud, and in a sense, we just made ourselves the focus. We showed up, we went into the room, and we worked, and whatever drift we had, in, we basically just did it out of loyalty to each other, and we knew that we had to form the wagons into a circle. Then he basically just goes on to say, I don't see us getting back together, but there's always a chance that we'll get back together, which definitely means they're never, ever getting back together, (laughs) ever. And that is the brief abridged history of Blue Nile. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, cross your fingers, you know, say a Hail Mary or whatever. We'll get some more music from them, but probably not. Let's dive into our wrap-up stuff here. Mason, uh, Connor as the guest... We are going to ask you, this is a new thing since you've been on the show last, all the way back Mm. in yesteryear. Uh, We give out an award on this show called the Mercedes Valuable Player. It works just like an actual most valuable player in sports. It's just named after Mercedes Ruel due to her performance in Jonathan Demme's 1988 film Married to the Mob. Of course, that's obvious. Mm. So, who, what on this album is your Mercedes valuable player. It can be someone, it can be something, it can be this I- an idea of something, but what is your Mercedes valuable player for hats by the blue Nile? Mm. 
I'm gonna say the song "The Downtown Lights." Yes, and Hell yeah, the brother. ending monologue of the song. I think it's just really the peak of the album. I think it's amazing. Like it's exactly it's. I feel like it's what they wanted to do. You know, like that was their mission and they did it. Hell yeah, Mason. So I, uh, I'm gonna say basically the same thing because I was gonna give my MVP to Paul Buchanan as the songwriter, mm, and I'm still gonna sure. do that, uh, Paul Buchanan. And I was going to use as a um, my sort of citation as his of uh, his strength as a lyricist the last verse in the Downtown Lights, which Connor just pointed out. The neons and the cigarettes, rented rooms and rented cars, mm-hmm. the crowded streets, the empty bars, chimney tops and trumpets. The golden lights, the loving prayers, the colored shoes, the empty trains. I'm tired of crying on the stairs. The downtown lights. Um, And he delivers this. And he delivers that with much greater Mm -hmm. um, skill than I do. (laughs) And when he says that, it really just... When it ends with, I'm tired of crying on the stairs... No matter where you are, you're just going to have to take a second and, like, gather yourself. Because <laughs> uh, it, it just he just gets you. He just gets you in that spot. And listen, it's winter 2021. Not a lot of people are having a good time. Most of people are probably still alone and um, sad. And I just think that his songwriting, um, it's good at, at, at going through the different sort of like colors and shades of loneliness the same way as Connor pointed out like a hopper painting can basically mm. um, so I just think just special shouts out to the boy Paul Buchanan uh, as my MVP and Noe who or what is your MVP so we've talked about the song The Downtown Lights which is probably my favorite track on the album like there's seven tracks mm-hmm. all of them are good. I think this passes the Maguire test, uh, personally, which is just means that every song is good on the album. That is the score. <laughs> but you gotta cross it. Listen, we have things on this show that don't cross that test all the time that don't pass that test. Yeah. So when something does, you gotta shout it out. Um, mm-hmm. And we talked about the specifically, you know, Paul Buchanan's voice and that little thing. I'm gonna give my Mercedes valuable player. To Paul Joseph Moore, who is the keyboardist for this band, the overall synth nice. sound, I guess, is probably a better, like, like accumulation, the better, like, representation of what I'm giving my award to. But Paul Joseph Moore is the one responsible for playing those keys and the one who's responsible for playing those synths. So, for me, that is my Mercedes Valuable Player. Like I said at the beginning of when we were talking about this, this feels like... 80s music incarnate like this feels exactly like what i would want to show someone if i was showing them 80s pop music to give them an idea of what what one corner of 80s music sounded like an alien or something but uh we also have to say if we'd recommend this i'll actually start this one off i'm gonna give this a just a regular old recommend i'm not gonna give it a full recommend but i am gonna give it just a regular old recommend I would definitely recommend getting this one uh, picking this one up wherever you get your music. If you have to call someone to get your music still, I would definitely recommend <laughs> finding out whatever number that is to get that one. Connor, do you recommend this album? Full recommend. I have yes. To. Let's fucking go. Yes. Hell yeah. Let's fucking go. Uh, I am going to give this one also a full Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that this is something of an essential, uh, uh, an essential album for, and just in terms of the 80s and um i don't know man like connor was saying all the time like there's you, there's nothing else that really sounds like it and i can agree like i can think of just analogs but nothing that's mm-hmm. like 
uh, or you know things that have definitely used this as an influence. This is also one of those albums that a band has put out an entire cover album of just like just covering hats. I um, <laughs> I forget what they were called. But oh, that's like actually like an album. That's like actually something someone did. Oh, it's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple different bands have done that. Um, uh, but there was one for hats. But full recommend. I think this is this is worth. It's forty minutes long. It's seven tracks, and yeah, all of them are long. But like, man, you're just like swimming in this thing for fucking forty minutes. And what could be better than that? I don't oh, know. Yeah. Full recommend. For Love me. that. Well, folks, we still have a fucking movie to talk about as well. Very, we're still having a normal time here tonight. <laughs> and we're about to have a normal time for probably about the next 10 seconds because of the movie that we're talking about here tonight. But, Connor, can you go ahead and preview the movie that we're talking about? That was, of course, your pick as well. Uh, the movie we're talking about is, of course, uh, Society. A movie about gathering with your friends. Yep. And your family yep. for some fun times. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. That's all I'll say. about how we're living in a society. This is this That's is right. the prequel to Joker in a lot of ways. This is a lot of yeah. ways the prequel to Joker. Uh, so, Connor, y- mm. you picked a very nice, a very sweet, very you know melancholy album to talk about. I can't necessarily say the same for the movie that you picked, but they both technically the the connecting thread is they both technically came out in 1989. But mm-hmm. why did you pick this movie? I know you touched on it a little bit when we talked about why you picked the album, but why this movie? Why did you pick Society to bring on the show? Uh so I own this movie on Blu-ray. Yes. Uh I got it Hell yeah, brother. pretty recently and I showed it to my partner who liked it a lot, uh, you know, I basically told her, I, what I introduced the, sh- the movie to her with, this confirms everything you think. Um, <laughs> you know? Uh, to me, I think it's a horror movie that has only grown in import. You know, that word importance, I hate it, but, like, uh, it's a movie that has grown in the message over the years. Sure. And I think it's yeah. one that, like, just you watch it and you're like, fuck, this is still happening. And it feels like, you know, we're all kind of Billy in this situation, like dim aware of something truly horrifying in the background, uh, you know, and, and slowly piecing that together. I think a lot of, a lot of millennials and zoomers, especially lefty ones have felt like Billy, uh, in some way or another. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, actually this is, and I think this is a great movie about class, about class consciousness, about, um, systemic violence basically and like the have like the haves and have nots being like totally literal yeah Um, quite literal in this case yeah Yeah. i mean it's literally like you will get devoured that's that's how it works like you are nothing you're you're fodder so then what is like i asked you with the album what is your relationship to this movie when did this movie first come into your life mm-hmm. how has it grown in your mind or changed as far as how you've thought about either the movie itself or the world or whatever what's your relationship to society uh i first saw this movie a couple years ago uh i was on shutter um, oh shout out to shutter that's a great streaming shout service. Out shutter it's so good it is so good i don't have it right now and i would definitely get it back it's fantastic it is um but yeah, I watched it on Shutter, really loved it, and then uh, bought the Blu-ray a couple years later because it just never left my mind, yeah. and it was just kind of an instant classic for me. Um, 
uh, yeah, my relationship with the movie is very much that of like just a huge fan, um, an admirer, and somebody who just was like, yeah, this all feels like weirdly familiar watching it. Like, it's basically what I told my partner, just like this is what we've talked about all the time. Right. Um, so yeah, that's basically my relationship with the movie. Just just somebody who loves it like very ardently. What about you, Mace? What's your what's your relationship to society? Because I know that you have a, you actually have a relationship to this movie. So this was uh, in 2020, on May 1st, 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched this movie on like a uh, in like a, a quarantine Zoom night movie night with my uh, three of my really good friends who we always like watch. We'd watch in the before times. We would watch movies of this sort of similar ilk together. Um, and, you say uh, movies of this similar also, ilk, but I don't know what that fucking well, I mean, means. Like, well, I just mean like like earlier in the year we watched like another Brian Yuzna joint. We watched or he produced this one, but um, uh, Reanimator sure. or From okay. Beyond or kind of stuff I, like I, that. Yeah. And we watched this, yeah, on May twenty first, twenty twenty, for my Letterbox log. Because uh, my friend Jack recommended it, and Jack's usually the guy that finds this kind of stuff before any of us do. And we watched it, and I had a great time. And then it just kind of like, I don't know if it was just like my like kind of circles became aware of it, but this started to be seeing a movie that I saw getting referenced to and popped oh, yeah. up a lot. Um, and it's a it's a it is a movie that is like <laughs> such a grotesque parody of the '80s that it almost it, that you can't believe that it's one still relevant and two like almost tame by today's comparisons in terms of what's going on um but this is a fantastic fantastic movie um that's all i want to say about it for now though noe have you seen this before or was this another so this was another new to me but unlike the blue nile and hats i knew a lot about this movie before i watched it because like you said mason Online, on Letterboxd, on Twitter, you know, on on the on the socials, you know, as my grandmother would say, <laughs> um, this movie has sort of gone through a reappraisal. I think uh, of late. I think this movie has sort of been lifted yeah. out of its you know weird fucked up corner, you know, that it was sitting in for a long, long time, and I think that people are rediscovering this movie within the last year, two years or so. So I knew a lot about this movie. I knew the ending of this movie because I had read about it. I had seen about it because I had never heard of it prior to it sort of coming back into the into the cultural consciousness. And I was sad that I had heard as much as I had heard about it prior to going in because I think this is a movie best watched knowing as little as possible. So I'm actually just going to say right now, if you haven't seen Society and you're listening to this podcast right now, it's on Prime. Check it out, then come back and listen to this discussion because yeah. you are going to have a better time yeah. watching it. Don't get spoiled on this, folks. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. No, this no, is no, going to no. be a better enjoyment it's, for you yeah. as a viewer if you know as little as you can going in. So that's my. Yeah, I, I went in blind pretty much, and I'm really glad I did. I knew there was a reveal, but I didn't know what it was. And then the result was like, yeah, it was just so worth not knowing. Absolutely. So if you don't trust me at all, at least Connor's here backing back <laughs> right. me up on that one. But Look, this guy, who knows? But I, you can trust me. <laughs> you, can, you can trust what Connor's saying. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But either way, I knew a lot about it going in. I think, like I said, this is going through a very big reappraisal these last couple of years. People are discovering it. It's gaining a cult following as if it already didn't have a cult following to it a lot before. And I will just say, to segue us into the actual discussion about the movie, 
I really, like I said before, I really wish that I didn't know fucking anything because I feel like knowing what we are leading up to and knowing sort of like the the way at which we are attacking this theme, it didn't feel as exciting to me personally yeah, watching the fair. reveal. It sure. didn't feel as, you know, holy shit. It didn't feel as like shocking and astonishing in the sense that like I didn't see it coming at all because I had an idea of sort of what was happening. It's an amazing sequence to watch. It, I think, is undoubtedly the coolest part of the movie. I think it's sort of the reason why you watch the movie in the first place. But Mm -hmm. I think I had a little bit of a different experience uh, watching the movie than maybe you guys did. And I don't think that's for the better. I actually think it hindered my viewing experience of it. So before I talk about some of that aspects of stuff... What the fuck do you guys like about this movie? Connor, Mason, like what do you, what do you guys like what stands out to you? You know, the ending, what 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 do we like? Yeah. Uh Connor, you go first. This is your pick. Yeah. Um for me what I really like about the movie is the it's funny because I can see how the slow burn of the first two acts must be frustrating if you know what's coming, yeah. right? Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah, what I really liked about it watching was actually that like yeah, I had no idea and the Basically, you just get these, like, really sneaky, gradual uh, build-up that something is really wrong here. Like, that, like, Billy's sister, her her ass is literally the wrong way in the shower. Uh, <laughs> yep. That you hear, like, a recording of sounds, or it sounds like a family at an orgy. It doesn't sound right, you know? Like, like all kinds of squelching sounds. Um just like little things that just slowly build up and up and up. Um, and what's great is like the main character kind of slowly recognizing that there is a conspiracy here, um, but not really able to do anything about it. And I think it's one of the things the movie actually really gets is how omnipresent and just like, galling the conspiracy of the wealthy really is in the United States that like it gets to the sense of how omnipotent and powerless you can feel. Yeah, I agree. And I will say also, Noah, that, like, um, you know, I had come into this movie more or less blind. I hadn't seen yeah. anything about the ending or, you know, th- that hadn't quite been spoiled for me. But, you know, a movie is called Society, and you see enough movies and you can kind of recognize patterns and templates. So I'm kind of like, okay, I know what the reveal at the end of this is going to be it's going to be a secret society that he's like not going to be a part of he's going to be sacrificed or whatever um but then once they get there and you are just in this like prosthetic um just goop uh this this this, this of just viscera and fluid Fluid. definitely fluid yeah yeah a lot of fluid. fluid and like um uh entrails and just gross shit and uh you know you have uh the mom is this creature who's like always in a handstand or something and the dad is literally an asshole literally Um, he is a butthead and they say it in the movie (laughs) (laughs) which is the psychiatrist has that weird fucking mouth that's he's the joker he's literally the fucking joker dude i like wrote that down as soon as i saw that on screen i was like the joker does fucking live in a society and it came out in 1989 (laughs) in europe and 1992 in america dude and it's not the Tim Burton Batman movie that j- that the Joker is living in a society in 1989. No, sir. He's living in Beverly Hills as a psychiatrist. But in any case, but this time watching it, this is only my second time watching it, 
it was kind of like almost liberating knowing what to expect because I was just like yeah. watching the movie and like, okay, I know that I'm going to see all my friends again at the last 20 minutes sure. of this movie. And now I can just like kind of sit back and I started to appreciate more of like what Connor sees in it, which is this like kind of um, it, it's it's a plot where, uh, you know, once you know the ending and once you know that they're not going to get away with or like know that they can't get away with it or can't stop anything really. Um, you're watching as Billy, you're, you're kind of like, you're, you're rooting for Billy to understand what's going on, even though you know that it's going to be fucking, um, horrifying on the other side of mm-hmm. it. Um, it's kind of like the ending of Invasions of the Body Snatchers in a way where it's completely bleak and you can't really do anything about, you know, uh, the situation that you're in, uh, just cause that's society or whatever. But no, I, I very much enjoyed this more the second time actually that I watched it because I could kind of like release myself from the from the expectations or whatever. Um, man, I don't know. I can see why how this has become a classic though at the very least. Can I quickly yeah. before before we talk a little bit about other aspects of this movie? Can I tell you about my my experience actually literally watching the movie and what the circumstances yeah. surrounding that were because it wasn't it wasn't how I wanted it to go but it was how it had to go because of some you know scheduling shit that happened during my day. I was originally planning on watching this last night. You know, I always try and watch the movie the night before because I feel like okay, the day is behind me. You know, all I have to do is focus on watching this movie right now so I can talk about it tomorrow with Mason and Connor. Like, that's literally what I have to do, you know, at 7, 8 o'clock or whatever it is. Well, something came up. Had to take care of it at around 7 or 8 o'clock that last night. So <laughs> I watched this movie at 11 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and uh, what a fucking exhilarating experience to see this. What a ride. <laughs> at 11 a.m. in the morning, just knowing that, you know, every review that I've read on Letterboxd about this is, this is the grossest movie I've ever seen. This is, you know, like, this is the most nasty movie that has ever come out. This is fucking gnarly. And I was just, like, bracing myself for that last, you know, culmination. I was just bracing myself for that. But what I was struck by, almost more so than the last 15, 20 minutes, whatever you want to call it, that finale sequence, there is the first two-thirds of this movie feel very, like, I don't want to say Twin Peaksy because that feels like almost like too easy of like a comparison, I feel like, at a certain level. But, like, the way that things are being, like, the, the, the like, campiness, I guess, or the, like, stiltedness of the performances in the first and second acts of this are really weird. I don't know if it fully worked for me, but I was along for the ride because I knew what was sort of the, there was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak, you know, but I found the first two thirds of this, I don't know, a little grating. I'm not going to lie. Like I'm not going to sit here and be like, Oh, I loved watching, you know, the first two thirds of this right off the rip. Again, watching it at 11 a.m. in the morning. I would not suggest watching this movie at 11 a.m. in the morning by any means, if you can help it. But the first two thirds are weird. They're weird in a different way. And I know that, you know, they're doing things to set up other things that come back later. They're doing things to set up the way that other people act at the end. But what's your guys' take, I guess, on like, the first two thirds of the movie, the actual quote unquote mystery of the movie. Everyone talks about the ending so much. Let's talk yeah. about the actual setup and mystery to this bad boy. Connor, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So what I talked about earlier, where the, the omnipresence of the conspiracy is what I like that, like there's no way to really understand sure. it for Billy. Like it's something it's 
too deep for him to really go into. It's it's too much. It's everywhere. Um, I kind of agree with you. I don't think the two first two thirds are as good as the third sure. act. Um, I think they're a build up, which makes sense. And I I do think that does make the movie a little flawed inherently. Sure. Um, and yet the the build up kind of works once you get to the explosion. It's just. You're just getting to the fireworks, yeah. right? You know, but the, the build up to the fireworks is pretty good. <laughs> it's interesting though, because the build up almost works better after having seen the fireworks. Like if I'm like yeah, watching if I'm watching that. someone like build a house, you know, or whatever, and I'm like, Oh, well, that's what the house is supposed to look like. I'm like excited to watch that thing come together. But as they're building the pieces, I'm like, Oh, this is gonna be one of the ugliest fucking houses I've ever seen in my entire life. And yet I'm shocked by the end when the house is all put together and I'm like, okay, that was all kind of worth it, I think, ultimately. Like, at the end of the day, like, watching this person build this house. I'm not huge on some of the execution as far as, like, the performances go from some of the tertiary characters, some of the surrounding characters. But I agree with you that I do think it is worth it to get to that finale. Mason, what do you think about sort of the first two-thirds, the mystery elements of this? Yeah, no, I agree. And it's it's like, um, you know, if, to me it's a very curious thing that the character of Billy is like a very popular football or like basketball star or something that you, mm-hmm. he's like running for student council and student council body president and seems to have like some support behind him. Um, but they're also trying to make him like an outsider for wider society and that just – or like, you know, in his family at least, like it's implied he's adopted or something like that and you don't get too much of a uh, backstory with that. That stuff doesn't quite gel for me right now and I, I'm not mm-hmm. – you know, I don't know if Connor has some insight into that. Um, but I definitely think that there's some parts of like the sort of like table setting, you know, that I think is really interesting. Like the thing with the di- – like the disappearing and reappearing nerd – um, that Petri character. Um, I also am just like not a hundred percent sure what's going on with um, Clar- uh, Clarissa's yeah. mom. Like, why? What's up with that character or her characterization? Um, there's also some wild lines of dialogue in this first act, which is just like one of my favorite things in '80s movies. Is just when you could get money together and shoot the script as it's written, uh, such as the line. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, how do you want your tea? Cream, sugar, or do you want me to pee in it? Wait, when do they say that? That's crazy. You're a class act, Clarissa. That's what, um, it's after, uh, Billy's at Clarissa's house the next day, and she's, like, making him tea or something, and she says that, I think, to kind of, like, get him out of, like, a spell that he's in, trying to put everything what together. What a weird moment. Uh, I don't even remember that. That's crazy. They say it in the movie. It's I kind of love that moment, not going to lie. It's so I, I know, weird. but it is really, it, it's, it's awesome. so weird. Um, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, on first watch, the stuff that I thought was, like, really, that stood out uh, uh, on, on, on first watch, I just kind of started to love it more. Like, the Blanchard I, character and everything they do. I with love that guy. that guy. He's really weird when you first meet him, but you, like, immediately, like, are, like, uh, like you flip the switch. Yeah, like, he's so funny and weird. Yeah, it's he gets like probably the most like on on first and second rewatch. He's the character who's most vindicated because <laughs> it's like no, he was trying to warn us. He was trying to was warn right. us by breaking into a teenage girl's bath. I know his methods are a little methods are a little unconventional, shall we say? But he's 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 doing it for a good reason, a la Walter White or something like that. His methods might be unconventional, but he's he's doing it for a good reason. 
That's right. Um, what else do we like about this movie? There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I almost wish that I had seen this movie prior to our last administration going into office for the first time, and then I wish that I had seen it. You know, now basically, as he's you know, as Don- sure. at forty-five, Donald sure. Trump is leaving office because I you know I would have been what in high school basically when you know I when I would have watched it for that first time, and I would have seen it as like okay, I get the metaphor, but how real is this actually? <laughs> and then you know, watching it the second time, I'm like, okay, border oh. borderline documentary. Now that we know so much about what's <laughs> happening, so really is crazy oh how much can change in five years. I don't know about you guys, but like, there's so much in this movie that just feels well, like real life as opposed to complete fantasy. Well, I don't know how much time you spent in Beverly Hills, Noah, when you were in L.A., but I spent a fair amount of time in Beverly Hills. Mm. About two years of my, you know, based almost four were spent working for various companies in Beverly Hills. And I will say this is practically a Frederick, Frederick Wiseman Damn. after <laughs> spending that much time in Beverly Hills. But uh, anyways, <laughs> no, it is interesting uh, because, you know, there's a lot of talk and, you know, it's it's the truth that, you know, Biden's change, you know, the administration is changing. It does feel like there's a rarefied new air in the uh, in the world in the environment right now. But it's like no one expects really much exactly. To change, you know, some the disaster no. will just be the disaster will just be a little better managed. But that's a discussion for another podcast. But <laughs> it, I think that this movie is going to just become even more frighteningly relevant uh, deeper into the Biden and then Harris administration weekend. Yeah, or is that a call? Are you calling that right now, Mason? <laughs> Hard call. We'll see, man. We're I don't know how long old Joe's going to last, but if he can make it four years, I know people that feel differently about that, but I am uh, – we will see. That's all I'm saying. I'm just staking that claim early. Connor, can I ask you what – if you had to describe – what your feelings, thoughts were the first time that you saw the shunting, as it's referred to as, in this movie. What was going through your head when you saw that for the first time? Oh, I think I just kept going, like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, variations of that, or this is great. I can't believe they <laughs> made this. Or sure. Like, really just versions of that going through again. Um yeah, a lot of that, but like really just like marveling at the effects. I I think, like I'm yeah. a practical effects geek, and like I think those the effects here by Screaming Mad George are just fucking spectacular and so surreal and weird. Like I like that they don't physically make sense, and yet they're so compelling. I think the uncanniness of it in particular is what works. That like the bodies are being turned and and contorted into shapes that like aren't they're not right. And I think that's, what's important. Yeah. I mean, so what about you? What was, what did you have a similar experience to Connor the first time that you watched it where you had similar thoughts as far as what was going through your head when you watched that sequence for the first time? Yeah. Yeah. I think I was just typing in the group chat to my friends. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. This. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like just screaming, losing my shit. Uh, it rocks. And I do just want to shout out again, Screaming Mad George yeah. mm-hmm. did the prosthetic Props. effects. That's his his credit in this movie. Um, I was just more surprised at like the kind of or, or tickled by the kind of like creativity of it and just trying to figure out 
you know, how they got that stuff together and, you know, how many, um, you know, uh, which troop of acrobats, you know, that they hired to play some of these, these, uh, like the more contorted ones or something like that. It's, it's truly spectacular. It's, it's, you know, at a higher budget, they wouldn't be able to pull this off or they'd be, they would pull it off worse somehow. Like for some reason, this is like the perfect, you could tell they spent most of the money on just the props at the end oh, yeah. there. And the prosthetics, and it just fucking shows, man. It's, like, the fact that they are, like, um, one, like, sort of cannibalistic, um, incestuous kind of orgy, and, um, but they are, like, one huge horrifying unit, and then individual, like, you know, uh, just terrifying, like, just sort of, like, you know, you see a guy eat an eyeball, and you don't know whose eyeball that is, or who that guy is, you see, like, arms coming out of weird places, it's so fucking cool. That's really all I got to say about it, I think, just to sum up my thoughts. And at a certain point, does it matter whose eyeball they're eating, you know, on a thematic level? Oh, yeah. Does yeah. it matter if they're eating Blanchard's eye or they're eating, you know, the, the dude sitting next to them's eye? No, doesn't matter to them, you know, what eyeball they're eating. It doesn't matter to them if they're even eating their own fucking, you know, finger or whatever. You know, they're just in the soup. You know, for lack of a better term, they're just floating around this fucking <laughs> evil concoction. Uh, but yeah, Screaming Mad George absolutely fucking crushes the prosthetics on this. I don't know if it's technically makeup or if it's technically, you know, a special effect or what, but whatever you want to call that thing, it just absolutely soars in this movie more so than I think most other you know movies where something like that happens like it really just pops in a major way on this movie yeah screaming mad george is the mvp here right i mean say that i yeah <laughs> without without a yeah, shadow of a like, doubt that's I, do you guys have anyone else like that's no come on. that's my mercedes valuable player easily 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 but i actually do want to do something that uh mason you and i haven't done since the um since the uh, the Love and Mercy episode, and so I need your help, Mason. Are you ready to help me out for a sec? All right. Okay. I'm not sure what this is going to be, but I'm, I'm always down to <laughs> So help. what I want to do, we did this on the uh, on the uh, the Love and Mercy episode where we talked about Brian Wilson's uh, album, or excuse me, not Dennis Wilson's album, and then Love and Mercy. We gave a shout out to every single person in the sound department because of the sound design in that yes. movie. And I want to I want to honor that tradition in here because you know Screaming Mad George gets the gets the credit, but there's so mm-hmm. many people who work in the makeup oh, yeah. department, and so I want to do a graduation oh, yeah. style clap every time I read someone's name. You feel me on this one, Mace? Oh, I'm so ready. Yeah, I'm gonna get pomp and circumstance. That's the Jurassic <laughs> Park theme. That was not pomp and circumstance. Okay, <laughs> the makeup department for the movie Society. Nick Benson. Just give me one. Just give me one clap, Mason. I just need one clap. Oh. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. You're good. Sorry. Sorry. Christopher, Christopher <laughs> Bergschneider. There we go. Uh, Roberto De Palma. Jeff Edwards. Screaming Matt George. Yes. Wendy Goss. Woo. David Grasso. <laughs> Moto Hata, Guy Himber, Makio Kida, I hope I'm saying that right, Makio Kida, <laughs> Roy Nimrim, I, that's an insane name, but Roy Nimrim, Louis LaMonica, Lisa Love, Jennifer Martin, 
I know. A lot of people were almost done. Valerie McKnight. Kevin Reeder. Johnny Psycho. (laughs) That is his name. Rebecca Scott. Sherry Short. Lee Stevens. And last but not least, Phyllis Temple. (laughs) So that's the entirety of the makeup department as credited on IMDb. That's the Mercedes Valuable Player in this movie. One of the easiest Mercedes Valuable Players I've ever given out on this show. 100%. An easy, yeah, you can't, it's it's so, uh, yeah, perfect. Love it. Is that a good transition to talk about some of the fast facts that I have here? Definitely. Okay. Not as much. I promise not as much as the Blue Nile one. There was just a lot of history there to talk about. But with this one, a little less. Still equally as interesting, I think. After having several of his productions fail for lack of finding a director, Brian Yuzna. Is it Yuzna? Is that what we're saying? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yuzna. I think so. Brian Yuzna decided to move into directing himself. As a producer of Reanimator, he held rights to a sequel and knew that he could find financing. He used his leverage for a two-picture deal, the first of which was Society. Yuzna said that he wanted the safety of having two pictures to establish himself as a successful director, which is an amazing thought to have, to have like a two-picture deal confirmed, which just goes to show you that if you make one stinker in Hollywood, like they do not give a shit about you ever again, or at least not anymore. Um... Society's script appealed to Yuzna partly because it was thematically similar to a failed project he had begun with Dan O'Bannon. Yuzna altered the script from a traditional slasher climax about a religious cult to the surrealistic aliens. So could have had that movie instead, but I'm glad we have Society uh, uh, as opposed to that. Society premiered at the Shock Around the Clock Film Festival in London in 1989. Great name. For its British release, Society was marketed in Video Trade Weekly with a picture of the film's theatrical premiere. Mark Kermode called it stupid yet brilliant, as it demonstrated that distributed that dis, as it demonstrated that the distributor did not know how to market the film properly, but also showed recognition that traditional marketing for a genre film was irrelevant. Society was a success in Europe, but was shelved for three years before getting a release in the U.S. Said director Yuzna in an interview, quote, I think Europeans are more willing to accept the idea that are the ideas that are in the movie. That's why, for example, society did really well in Europe and in the U.S. did nothing where it was just one big joke. And I think that's because they responded to the ideas in there. I was totally having fun with them, but they are there nonetheless. Any thoughts on that quote from Yuzna, the director of the film, about why it did better in Europe as opposed to America? Connor, Mason, anything? Yeah, I think only till recently Americans really aren't into confronting the idea of classes, of a class system. So I think Europe is much more acclimated to that concept sure. and much more used to it. So yeah, I think that's a big part of it here, for sure. I think till recently that it really has not been the case. And I think that's society's come back here, too. That's a great point. In a major it's way. It's a great point that like Europeans you know, that were seeing this movie when it came out were more, you know, they're like, yeah, there that exists, you know, to a greater or lesser degree. Yeah, they had been striking that week for one reason or <laughs> another, you know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Scottish comic book company Rough Cut Comics acquired the comic book rights to society in 2002, producing an official sequel. The comic book series returned in 2003 with Society: Colon Party Animal. 
by writer Colin Barr <laughs> and artist Shelley Robertson in issue one and Neil Cameron in issue two. Do either of you guys have uh, experience with the comics? No. <laughs> Something to look forward to on a rainy day then. Uh, in the early 2010s, Time Out London conducted a poll with several authors, directors, actors, and critics who have worked within the horror genre to vote for their top horror films. Society placed number 95 on the top 100 list, so it cracked in there. So shout out to Society. That was right. that was even before I feel like the reappraisal really started to happen, at least that I was aware of. I feel like the reappraisal has only been happening for like the last year and a half, two years or so. So shout out to the shout out to the real ones, you know, out there giving society its day in the sun. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, while shooting the infamous shunting scenes, Brian Yuzna would put a sign on the soundstage door that read Abandon all hope, ye who enter, which is just nice. so insane. Nice. But I'm glad. Perfect. That's you could rough. tell he knew exactly what kind of movie he was making, too. You know, he could he was having fun, at least, with that aspect of it, which was cool. Uh, while shooting, oh, excuse me, Brian Yuzna cited The Spiral Staircase and Rosemary's Baby as the film's biggest influences, particularly in the terms of paranoia as a major element. I haven't seen The Spiral Staircase, mm. but I didn't even know what it was until I found that fast fact. Looked it up. Seems cool. It's from 1946. I'm going to give it a watch. But I actually do feel the Rosemary's Baby influence in this, like, pretty hard, mm-hmm. to be honest yeah, with you. definitely. So, yeah, 100%. pretty cool. Uh, the shot of Clarissa contorted in bed was achieved using Devin DeVasquez and one of DeVasquez's friends who was buried underneath the covers with her legs exposed. The two were placed at such an angle that it appears to be Clarissa's body twisted in a strange position. I'm always fascinated by how people pull shit off like that. Cause like, I love that shot. Too. It's not that. computer generated. Like, I, I don't think there's anything in this movie that's like used like compute, like a computer was used. I would have to imagine. No, no. Uh, and then yeah. the last fast fact that I have here <clears throat> is Tim Bartell, or Blanchard, as he's known in the movie, according to Yuzna, his acting during the shunting scene was so disturbing that he had to scale it back in editing, which is just, I mean, folks, you're, you've, you've, at least you've seen the movie now that you you know, are listening to this uh, part of the pod, I would hope. He's absolutely killing it in that scene. I mean, quite literally, yeah. <laughs> he is killing oh God, it, yeah. you know? Absolutely insane that he had to scale it back in editing. Uh, we all said it at the beginning, but you know, we're at the Mercedes valuable player part screaming mad George easily, easily the entire team, you know, the Mercedes valuable player Connor, do you recommend 1989 society? Oh yeah, of course. Mason. Hell yeah. I'm going to full recommend this one too. Uh, it's, it's short. It's quick. It's nasty. It's a ton of fucking fun. Uh, I'm sure if you're listening to this part now, you've already seen it, but in case you're being a little, Uh and listening to it before seeing the movie, it's on Prime. No excuse. Go watch it. No, I'm going to give it a conditional recommend. Like I said, I did not have the best viewing experience of this, unfortunately, because I watched it at 11 a.m. in the morning. I really think that impacted my viewing experience of it, and I think you were right, Mason. In the rewatch, it will probably be more fun. I can see myself coming back to this post-COVID, showing it to a group of friends, you know, having fun in the group setting with it. But for now, I have to give it a conditional recommend just because my viewing experience the first time wasn't exactly, I think, as positive maybe as your guys is. But I'm excited to revisit the movie. So right now I have to give it a conditional recommend. Hopefully that changes upon rewatch. Yeah, show this to your younger cousins. Tell them this is what Mm -hmm. happens at Congress at the end of uh, every session of Congress. (laughs) Um, Yeah, pretty cool. Also, what happened to you, right, Mason? (laughs) 
<laughs> this had happened to me, yeah. actually. Yes, it did happen. Mm-hmm. To me. I worked in Beverly Hills, like I said. This happened to yeah, me. Yeah, and a when lot. you didn't come back from lunch on time with the run, they were like, all right, get in the shunting room, bro. Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. Absolutely <laughs> get fucked. Uh, but, folks, we did the entire show. I can't believe it. We fucking did it. Uh, we did it. We made folks. it through the end of another episode. Yay. Connor, thank you so much for being here with us, bringing us these two items. Thank you. This is the time where you get to plug whatever you want to plug. So, yes. plug away. Uh, I've been writing a lot lately, so you can find my work at cmcrockford.com, my website. Uh, but also, in general, uh, check out my piece at The Spool about the show The Good Lord Bird and uh, my recent article at Pace Magazine about Jean Penlev science movies. So check those out, please. Hell yes. Uh, under CM Crockford. And we can link to that. We can link to that, right, Mason, in the description? We'll definitely be linking to that. Sweet. We'll also be linking to the bar in a podcast. Yes, bro. Yes. Which I do with Connor every week. Um, and yeah, you can find our show at the links in the description. You can send us an email and it make it written uh, read on the air at everybody wants to the number two get on the list at gmail.com. You can find me on Letterboxd on uh, Instagram at Hot Dog Tabicki or just. Uh, in Chicago, in my room, trying to put up art and make it seem a little more livable. Uh, still reading Reagan Land by Rick Perlstein, and mm-hmm. it's still good. Um, and yeah, that is all I have to say about that. Noe, what about you? You can follow me on Twitter at Noah Marger. You can follow me on Instagram at Noah.Marger. You can follow me on Letterboxd. And I, today, as of this recording, I've got a fun, cool list that I just made about movies with Mm. animals that are featured (laughs) that are, like, main parts of the plot. So think you're, uh, you think, think most valuable primate, think, you know, Ed starring Matt LeBlanc, (laughs) think Flipper, you know, all those, Dunstan checks in, all those faves. Mighty Joe exactly. Young. Any Mighty Joe Young? Oh, what was the movie that was on all the VHSs about the lady that had all those animals? Like she had a gorilla. Damn, dude. It, you, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll text you later. Dad, text me if you figure that out so I can add it. But, you know, if you have suggestions for what to add to that list, please comment them on the Letterboxd list or DM me. I want to compile that for when the aliens come and they are like, what the fuck are we supposed to watch? They can find my (laughs) list of animal movies and they can watch those. We need one album from the 80s and one list of movies (laughs) to watch. (laughs) And it's going to be mine with the fucking animals. Uh, so you can follow me on all those places. You can follow. You can go to Instagram at ylg.world and watch the stuff that I'm doing with Fed over there. And you can listen to my other podcast, my favorite podcast, a podcast about people's favorite things. This week, we're talking to filmmaker Haley Benzmiller about the happiest place on earth that is currently closed. That's right. We're going to Disneyland, folks. Mom and Dad and Vicky always taking us to Disneyland, but that's where we're going with Haley on that episode. It will be very fun. I'm recording it tomorrow as if, as of this recording that we're doing right now, but it'll be out on Thursday if you're listening to this show uh, on the day that it comes out. Thursday, I believe the 20th. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Uh, so you can listen to that, uh, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at MyFavePod on Twitter, and at MyFavorite underscore podcast on Instagram. My other little recommendos, we got HBO Max, Tiger, the Tiger Woods documentary on there. Pretty good. But the other little recommendo that I have that's even better than that, if you have Prime, and you do because you went to go watch uh, Society, check out One Night in Miami on Prime. It's Regina King's 
uh, directorial debut. It's a little slow, a little boring for the first 40 minutes, but I promise you, if you stick with it, it's a really rewarding watch. Uh, definitely, that that gets a that gets a recommend from me. Those are my two other little recommendos. But that's it. That's all I got. Mason, bring us out. Oh, yeah. Black Lives Matter. Black Trans Lives Matter. Abolish, defund the police. Save the post office. Tell someone you love them. Connor, thanks for, again for being Thank with you. us this week. And for the first time ever, so far, fuck Joe Biden. <laughs> we'll see you all next. Bye, week. guys. Bye.